The richer you get, the harder it is to manage your estate. There's lots of moving parts like portfolio diversity, tax mitigation, asset protection, and estate planning. That's why the ultra wealthy use family offices, and that's where Valerity Wealth comes in for you. Run by a former sovereign wealth fund manager, Valerity Wealth brings institutional level expertise to the high paid professional. Let Valerity quarterback your finances. Book your free consultation at ValerityWealth.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast. And uh, today I'm back in my office, which is a big relief. I was uh, running from the fires, uh, the Thomas fires in Ventura, and then they kind of spread up north here to Santa Barbara and Montecito area. And um, so about, I don't know, it was about two weeks ago, we woke up, and as I mentioned before, the smoke alarm was going off, but there was no fire. There was ash on the deck, and uh, I decided, I we better get out of here. So um, there was no fire. We couldn't see any fire, but we, you know, it was this air quality was really bad, and and again, there was ash and stuff. So we decided, let's you know, let's head up north. So uh, you know, for a few days, ride this thing out. Well, that few days ended up being you know being one week, and then two, and the next thing is so it was total of about 14 days we were gone and uh, ended up spending some time up in Santa Cruz where my wife is from and um, finally made it back and it is nice to be back there's a little bit of ash here and there my car was covered with uh, ash but uh, other than that everything's fine and back to normal so just uh, grateful to be back hey by the way I got a bunch of I got various presents from people uh, you know gifts and and things for the holidays from some of the listeners, and I do appreciate that. You don't really need to do it, uh, but it's uh, it's it's I'm touched. Okay, so thank you for that. You know, let's start uh, like we always do with the show. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what you are missing out on wealthformula.com. Wealthformula.com, as you know, is the home of the Wealth Formula podcast. Tons of resources there. Make sure you check them out. You can get a free copy of Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth in the PDF form. Now, this was my best-selling book that was on Amazon. It's still there. You can get it if you want, or you can just download it for free. You can also get a copy by simply texting 44222 and typing Wealth Formula, one word. Also, don't forget, you know, we had this great webinar um, last week uh, talking about American homeowner preservation, George Newberry and American homeowner preservation, who is one of our sponsors on the show. And George was doing a webinar for this raise that they're doing. Uh, you know, he is, uh, this is the last fund that they're going to do 12% on. So I would definitely get in there as soon as possible. I think they're going down to 10%. And so I highly recommend if you have been thinking about it to at least uh, go and check it out, ahpfunding.com. Uh, I uh, am uh, in this uh, current fund that he's raising for myself, and I am not giving you financial advice, but I will tell you that I am a big fan of this business. So um, go check it out. This is a business that basically buys uh, failing mortgages for pennies on the dollar from Big banks, hedge funds, turns around and keeps people in their home with uh, renegotiated terms, mortgages. Everybody wins, and right now you get 12%, but not for long. So check it out. 
As far as the topic for today, let me start out by taking you way back. Let's take you back about uh, 450-some years ago, and it was in 1593 uh, where there was a Dutch botanist by the name of Carolus Clusius, which I'm not sure if I pronounced that name right, but that's the way it looks like it's said. Well, anyway, he was a botanist, and planted several tulip bulbs in his uh, botanical garden. And over time, he proved that there was an incredible ability for these things to grow in harsh conditions such as those in the low countries. Now, tulips at this point were new to Europe. They had been in sort of the Ottoman Empire, and they were introduced uh, to uh, the Dutch by the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, they'd seen nothing like them. I mean, these were plants that were were nothing like those that were in the Netherlands at the time. And furthermore, uh, there was a virus, a called a mosaic virus, uh, that the tulips, uh, uh, the tulips infected with, made them even more extraordinary. You see, these particular tulips, the ones in, infected with uh, the mosaic virus. Uh, they uh, they took on this incredible flame-like appearance, and uh, people were seriously wooed by them. The problem was that they took several years, sometimes over a decade, to cultivate. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Dutch people were enthralled with these tulips, and the novelty and the scarcity of these tulips turned them into status symbols. And at the time, there was a growing Dutch middle class. Uh, they had just gotten independence from the Spanish. There was lots of prosperity in the street. And just like most new money, they wanted to show it, right? So they weren't buying uh, buying fast cars. They were buying tulips. And of course, uh, because of the scarcity and because of the demand, you might imagine, the price of tulips skyrocketed. And soon, the price of tulips became clearly excessive. And at, at the peak of what became known as tulip mania, in February 1637, some single tulip bulb sold for more than 10 to 15 times the salary of the average craftsman. More than the price of the typical Dutch home. I mean, seriously, this was a massive hysteria. People were flipping tulips, you know, like they were flipping. They were buying them. They were just hoping that they'd go up in price and then they'd, they'd sell them. Uh, and because the appreciating markets, um, you know, they were able to do this for a while. And, and because of these massively appreciating markets, there was even a futures market for tulips. And, and that drove prices even higher. And the future markets happened, frankly, because, you know, the, these things took so long to cultivate. People were willing to pay for them ahead of time to make sure they got them. And then, of course, one day in February of 1637, a tulip auction failed to attract any buyers. Nobody showed up. And it isn't clear exactly why, although some speculate that the bubonic plague kept most people home that day. At any rate, the merchants with tulips were thrown into a panic, which resulted in a massive sell-off. In short order, these tulips, these things that had had just incredible value. I mean, people were buying 
acres and acres of land with them became worthless. And so now, these days, in modern times, now every time you hear about a wild speculative market that seems to be irrational, people bring up what they call tulip mania, right? You hear it all the time. There's probably people talking about tulip mania who have no idea what they're talking about, but this is what it's about. So here's the question. It's been coming up a lot. Is cryptocurrency the new tulip mania? A lot of people seem to think so, including really smart people. I mean, people I trust, like, say, Jim Rickards. But there are others, like Tika Tawari, who doesn't think so. Now, Tika is a very interesting guy. I really like this guy a lot. He's a former hedge fund guy who's become one of the most vocal proponents of cryptocurrency in the mainstream. And he is my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast this week. So when we come back, Tika Tawari. Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com, accesswealthaviation.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, I'm really excited. I've got a phenomenal guest. My guest is Tika Tawari. Now, Tika is the co-editor of the Palm Beach Letter and uh, Palm Beach Confidential in particular, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. Uh, He's got a really fascinating story, right? So he's a guy who started out uh, in a foster care system as a kid uh, in the United Kingdom, came to the U.S. uh, in his teens with just a few bucks in his pocket, and by 18, he was the youngest uh, employee at Lehman Brothers. And just a couple years later, he, he became a, uh, the youngest vice president in the history of Schertz and Lehman. So that was very impressive. He went on to become more of a traditional Wall Street uh, hedge fund manager and is now retired in that capacity. And these days, he is actually one of the most recognized faces in the cryptocurrency world, certainly from uh, the mainstream looking in. Uh, Itika has been a contributor to Fox Business Network. He's appeared on Fox News Channel, CNBC, and ABC's Nightline. Tika, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you, Buck. It's it's great to be here. Thank you for the invite. You bet. Now, um, I'm excited to talk to you, man, because I am, um, you know, I've found sort of a lot of interest myself in this uh, this area of cryptocurrency. Now, you know, in terms of your background, how'd you go from being a traditional Wall Street guy? Uh, and then shift into this crypto world. What what got you interested? When did you get in? It's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I first was exposed to Bitcoin around 2011, and uh, like many people, really just thought it was uh, a Ponzi scheme. It didn't make any sense. It didn't have any value. And you know, I come from a from a very traditional Wall Street background. You know, we we use valuation metrics in order to determine what a what a company is worth. 
uh, or what an industry is worth. And uh, Bitcoin just uh, it's a it's a brand new asset that doesn't have the typical metrics that you would look for. So I automatically assumed, like many people still assume, that Bitcoin was nothing more than a Ponzi scheme designed to enrich early adopters. Um, so I, I ignored uh, Bitcoin. And then a funny thing happened. I saw Bitcoin go to around $1,200 and then collapse. And I had expected the collapse. But what I have learned, Buck, is that when something collapses due to being a fraud, it goes to zero, right? It has absolutely no value. Um, but Bitcoin, even after it had collapsed, more than 85% was still worth billions of dollars and was still being traded. And and that in, intrigued me. It interested me, and it, and it gave me the first inkling that I might have been wrong in my initial assumption that Bitcoin was nothing more uh, than a Ponzi scheme. And so I started doing a tremendous amount of research. I started traveling all over the world, attending Bitcoin events and talking to Bitcoin people. And, and I finally grasped what made Bitcoin so valuable. Um, and it had to do with the underlying technology behind Bitcoin, the blockchain, which enabled uh, enables you and I to transact with one another without relying on a, on a centralized third party or a trusted third party. It also allows us to possess wealth that no other human being can steal from us. So long as we keep our private key, which is essentially our password safe, um, no one can compel you, me, or anyone else to give up that wealth. And that's never existed before, Buck. Uh, even from the days of cavemen, right, the stronger man could always take wealth, or food, which was wealth back then, from the weaker man. And then throughout history, we've obviously seen, you know, kings and governments um, uh, really abuse their power of uh, stealing uh, the assets or the buying power uh, of its citizens. And here was uh, an asset class that was absolutely safe from um, any any malicious third party that would that would want to take it uh, and that to me uh, showed that there was just tremendous value here in this uh, in this digital asset yeah you know it's it's interesting I've said this before I think it's uh it's a very interesting space where there's a confluence of liber libertarian thought and ultimately computer geeks right I mean that's a powerful mix um, you know uh, it, you know, what, one question I have is I've heard, uh, you know, I was uh, I met you at the Cambridge Conference in San Francisco with uh, Jim Rickards and all that. And, you know, you hear a lot of people uh, down on currencies in general, but is it's it's always referred to by a lot of the folks still as a fiat currency. And, and in some respects, to me, it doesn't quite fit the measure of a fiat currency. Is it a fiat currency or not? Uh, Doug Casey considers it a form of a fiat currency. Um, I do not consider it to be a, a fiat currency. Fiat currencies ha have nothing to back them, right? The U.S. dollar just has a promise to pay. So uh, as opposed to Bitcoin is, is backed by cryptography and it's backed by uh, mathematical law and mathematical proofs. There can't be more than 21 million Bitcoin in place. Uh, it, it costs an enormous amount of money to generate even a single Bitcoin. 
Um, and there's an ongoing cost for maintaining the Bitcoin network. The, you know, the Bitcoin network, you know, people really don't understand how valuable that is. It's a global network that allows you to it's it's both a payment network, a settlement network, a remittance network and a completely distributed secure network all in one. Right. And so that that's incredibly valuable. So um, uh, just as gold has has inherent value given the fact that it's limited and that it, it costs a lot of money to dig it up out of the ground. Um, I, I believe that many of those principles can translate to this, what I believe is a, a digital version of gold, and, and that is Bitcoin. Yeah, and um, to your point, um, I've said it before, but I, I personally, when I look at this, and I'm certainly no expert in this area, but to me, Bitcoin in particular has more qualities similar to gold than the American dollar. Um, and uh, and I'm, maybe I'm being a little bold to say that to this audience, but I, I really believe that. Now, um, as of this moment, we're over 16,000. That's right. Just, and it's funny because, you know, people are like, oh, gold, you know, the Bitcoin could go to 25,000 by the next by next year. It could by next week, it could go to 25,000, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And of course, you know, going back to this conference, you have people left and right calling this the biggest bubble since tulip, the tulip bubble of the Dutch golden age. Are they right? right? No, they're completely wrong. And they're confusing uh, what what's called S-curve adoption with a bubble. So if you look at a chart of, um, of Bitcoin, just going back a year, Bitcoin has these massive spikes and then has these massive pullbacks. And, and then during every pullback, you see thousands of articles. See, we told you it was a bubble. See, we told you it was a bubble. And then it, it, it inflates again and, and, you know, they kind of scurry off and then it comes in again. So what we will continue to see, Buck, is relentless volatility, but also uh, a relentless uptrend, right? We are in a secular bull market for Bitcoin. It doesn't mean that we're going to go up in a straight line. This year, I've had to live through uh, three uh, massive pullbacks, that anywhere in the range of 40 to 60%. Right. That's that that's that's very difficult. I mean, if the stock market pulled back uh, 40, 50 and 60 percent, right, had three of those pullbacks in a one year period. I mean, people will be jumping off out of buildings. So this is the nature of Bitcoin. You have to recognize the fact that it is incredibly volatile. Um, but that's just the nature of the asset class. As it becomes bigger, you will see that the volatility will tamp down. And that, that's certainly been true if you look at the early days of the volatility of Bitcoin to now. I, I will say that, you know, we've I've been recommending Bitcoin since it was $400 two years ago, and uh, we haven't sold any. We, we think there's quite a bit more upside up uh, ahead of us. Yeah. And, and to the point of volatility uh, decreasing as others get involved, uh, you know, obviously right now you've got uh, Bitcoin futures. I think maybe are the official now or they were going to be very soon what impact does that have is this in some regards it seems to me like this is just the beginning i mean the institutional money is just starting to get in am i am i right yeah i was in new york city um uh, the week before last attending consensus invest which is an event specifically geared towards institutions and i was floored at the level of institutional interest uh, in Bitcoin. I met with one of the largest um, creators of derivatives in the world, and he is just licking his chops, getting ready 
to get his clients involved in Bitcoin derivatives. Now, I will say that having a paper market, uh, which is what derivatives are versus the physical market, is going to create a lot of volatility, probably more volatility than we've dealt with uh, in the past. But I see this as just part of Bitcoin's maturing process. I mean, two years ago, the narrative was Bitcoin was only used by child pornographers and by uh, terrorists and by drug dealers. And, you know, nobody on Wall Street wanted anything to do with Bitcoin. But here we are two years later, and now people are realizing, yes, just like any technology, it's uh, uh, very often adopted by criminals, but there are also uses for the technology far and above um, uh, any, uh, any criminal uses. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing institutions uh, start looking at it and also just plain greed, Buck. They've yeah. seen this asset class explode in yeah, price, right. and they want a piece of the action. Yeah, they'd be in on tulips again if they came back in fashion, right? <laughs> I'd say there would be tulip futures <laughs> if, if tulips were gunning this high, yes. Right, um, right. So I, I would just say this is very important that, you know, uh, a Bitcoin does get ahead of itself from time to time, just like any asset class. And I would suggest that anybody looking at Bitcoin really view it as a long-term investment and really not risk anything more than you'd be prepared to lose. Because if you put more in than that, Buck, what happens is, is that during the down cycles of volatility, you get scared and you end up sending, selling out at the bottom of the price cycle and then watching it go back up. Yeah. So the, the key is, is don't allocate any more capital than this than you're willing to lose and that you're willing to deal with massive volatility. Like you could put money in tomorrow and it could be down 50% two days later and then up 100% you know, two months after that. That is just the nature of Bitcoin and you have to be emotionally and mentally prepared for that. You know, there is a, a lot of these other, you know, we talk about Bitcoin, right? But, you know, there's there's literally thousands of currencies now. Probably most of them are not, uh, <laughs> probably not worth, worth the, even what they're uh, selling for at a few cents. But there are a lot of very quality ones, too, like Ethereum, et cetera. And you don't yeah. really hear about this stuff very much. I mean, what is it uniquely about Bitcoin versus these other currencies, namely, say, Ethereum or Ripple? Uh, that make it, uh, is it just the first, you know, that they're the first yeah, it's, in line? It's, it's, it's the first mover advantage is certainly part of it. It's, it, it's, it's the name that everybody knows. Um, but also the Bitcoin network is the most secure blockchain in the world. People have been attacking the Bitcoin network every day for 10 years, and they have never been able to knock it offline. They have never been able to distort that blockchain and and people get confused and say well wasn't bitcoin hacked no bitcoin's never been hacked but exchanges have been hacked people's wallets have been hacked but the actual blockchain itself the sanctity of the of the ledger has has never been violated and and, and maybe if folks are new they're not exactly sure what blockchain is but perhaps i you'd want me to explain yeah that real quick yeah right? that'd be great Okay, so a blockchain is, is actually quite simple. It's just a, a ledger that is shared. So the same way when you go to the bank, Buck, and you draw some money out of your bank, and then you go to the ATM of another bank, uh, the other bank has this shared ledger with your bank, and they say, well, you know, Buck took out 100 bucks, so, you know, we, we're, we know he, he can't take out that 100 bucks again, right? You can't double spend that money. 
And so uh, banks have a shared ledger right now. The problem is with banks is that banks have a history of lying and they, they will go back and they will manipulate that ledger or manipulate that information. Plus that ledger, we can never see it. It can only be seen by this kind of inside cartel. So a blockchain is different in that it is a public ledger. Everybody can see every single transaction. And what makes the blockchain special, there are two things that make it special. One is once data has been written into a blockchain, it cannot be tampered with. It cannot be rewritten. It cannot be changed. Uh, and the other thing is, is that when uh, new data is added to the blockchain, um, in order to prevent double spending, right, so spending the same $100 twice, all the nodes in the network, they, they look at this shared copy of the ledger. And so if, if I'm now trying to spend Bitcoin that I've spent before, the, the network will look at all the other copies of the ledger and say, well, hold on, Tika's trying to spend Bitcoin he doesn't have. And it will reject, uh, reject me uh, uh, doing that. And it does it automatically. And so in order for new information to be added to the network, 51% of the computers have to agree, yes, this is a valid transaction. And that's called reaching consensus. And it, it's, it's this magical way of moving data that uh, creates a network that does not rely on a trusted third party. We do not have to rely on a bank saying, yes, this transaction is accurate, this transaction isn't accurate. It is a self-functioning uh, uh, network that, that has no leadership. And that has never happened before. It's what makes Bitcoin so powerful that there's no central Bitcoin headquarters. I hear, see people all the time email me saying, Oh, what if they shut Bitcoin down? Well, you, you know, you can't shut Bitcoin down. There's over 5,000 nodes. You'd have to shut down the entire internet to kill Bitcoin. Yeah. So, um, that, sort of like defeating what, terrorism or something like that, right? Well, I don't like to draw the parallel of terrorism <laughs> and Bitcoin. I know Jim Rickard does. Know, right. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's speaking... a very robust network that 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 is is very strong and for all intents and purposes is hack proof. Right. So speaking of, of Jim, Jim brought up uh, the idea that blockchain competitors, um, you know, namely, I think IBM has a product like Hyperledger or something like yeah, that. Hyperledger Fabric, yeah. um, you know, I from what I hear, you know, Hyperledger is not really a uh, really not the same level of security of blockchain are there other i mean i don't know what your thoughts on that are i mean there are others out there um in their infancy like i know swirl winds has something called hashgraph uh that they're looking into that i've been interested in what 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 is there a possibility that you see on the horizon in reality of replacing blockchain with a different kind of consensus mechanism well, um, well, there's there's different takes on blockchain, right? So a blockchain essentially just means you're you're using this distributed ledger technology, and so the banks call it DLT. They don't like to use the word blockchain, and there's different ways of creating security on a blockchain. The and I won't go into a deep dive on it because uh, yeah. I, I don't want to put your audience to sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, well, uh, in, at least in I'll Bitcoin, be interested. <laughs> In so. Bitcoin, they use something called proof of work. 
And then in other networks, they use something called uh, proof of stake. And so there are different ways of securing the blockchain. And so I think you need to look at it, uh, um, the, the, the difference between Apple and Google and Microsoft and Amazon, right? They all do different things, but they're in the technology space. Just because uh, there's Apple doesn't mean I can't buy Google, right? Doesn't mean I, I can't own shares in, in either one of them. So each one of these projects are attacking a different sector of the market. So it's not as binary as this one will kill that one. Or, the, or, or, or this one can't survive if this one wins. Right. Right. It's, it, it's, it's, a, lot, it's a lot bigger uh, than that. Rickards brought up the point, the one thing that he, uh, and I'm using him just as the devil's advocate myself, sure. because I'm, I'm generally, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on your uh, brain wavelength on this. Well, let, let's, talk about, let's talk about money laundering for a second, because he was making a big point that Bitcoin is this you know, refuge of money launderers. So let's put this in perspective. We have some of the most onerous AML rules in the world. AML stands for anti-money laundering. And yet it's estimated that $3 trillion a year is laundered, right? AML does not work. Our AML rules do not work. And up until recently, the entire Bitcoin network was only 150 billion. It's a, it's a, it's a little, it's bigger now because it's moved up as much. So I think we're at 250 billion right now for the entire market cap of Bitcoin versus three trillion dollars a year that are laundered globally that we know of. So I would say Bitcoin is not big enough for money launderers to really use in size. It's too small relative to the cash market. And two, Bitcoin is only a pseudo anonymous, right? So what that means is, yes, you, all the addresses have an anonymous uh, 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 number attached to them. They don't have your name attached to them. But every single transaction that you do that involves Bitcoin is tracked on the public blockchain. So you only need to get tied. Your identity only needs to get tied to one transaction and a forensic accountant can unravel every single transaction you've done in Bitcoin. So money launderers actually are, are not only maybe the dumb ones are using Bitcoin, <laughs> yeah, right, but right. the smart ones are using not cash, using right? a I mean, blockchain technology <laughs> right. to, uh, uh, to launder money. It's, it's really a very stupid idea to use a blockchain to launder money. Let's talk a little bit about the concept of coins, okay? Because I think this is a very confusing thing for people. And, and frankly, for myself too, as somebody who's already, you know, sort of, feels like I'm way ahead of most people in this. You know, there's, uh, as we've talked about, there's a number of other uh, cryptocurrencies out there, like, say, Ripple, which, uh, uh, you know, for example, is is something that a lot of the banks are starting to use, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got even, even Ethereum, where there's a big role for smart contracts, et cetera. What does a coin even mean in these, in these technologies? Because... There seems to be this sort of balance there that I'm trying to understand where it's a coin versus a technology or a business. Where does the I, I coin think, come in? Yeah, so I, I think a, a, a coin is just a simple term we use that we can understand. I, I would say the, the, the more appropriate term would be cryptographic token or token for short. And so this is a, a distinction I'd like to make for your audience that – 
when everybody talks about crypto, they all, they will invariably say cryptocurrency. And and I want to make it clear that not every crypto asset is a cryptocurrency. Crypto assets generally fall into two different types of of use cases. One is a cryptocurrency, which is a, a cryptographic token that is attempting to become a substitute for fiat currency. So Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, we can say are cryptocurrencies. And then there are things called utility coins or utility tokens. And these are tokens that are used um, uh, either in the creation or the delivery of a particular service. And so I'll give you an example of that. The Ethereum network. Um, Ethereum is probably the it's the one that most people know other than Bitcoin. It's the second largest market cap coin in the world. And so what Ethereum is, Buck, it's a global computer uh, that you can develop on. And uh, any application you put on the Ethereum network cannot be shut down by any government. And it's a so it's a blockchain application that you can build the blockchain um, application. Sorry, it's a blockchain platform that you can build blockchain applications on. So the same way that people build applications for the Apple iOS or for the Microsoft operating system, think of Ethereum as a development platform, right? So this allows me to build an application without having to build out an underlying blockchain infrastructure. And so um, the, the currency for buying computer power on the Ethereum network is a token called Ether, right? So if you want to build an application on top of Ethereum, you have to buy the Ether token to, to buy computational time on this network. So every time you do a computation, you have to pay a fraction of an Ether. And so this creates demand for the Ether token. And it, so, which is why Ether is very clearly a utility token. Can look at it like it's the gas needed to run, uh, uh, to run the computer programs on this particular network. Does that distinction yeah, it, make sense between it, utility coins and cryptocurrency? It does. And I think it also helps me understand for once why, why it makes sense for Ethereum to go up in value because as people need I mean, they have a slightly different system where it sounds like there really isn't, you know, a limit of Ethereum, which potentially could be a problem. But as as the need for that continues or the demand, then that's what creates the increased value in the token. Is that it fair? Creates the increase, yeah, it creates the increased value in the token. And any uh, Ether that you use to power your contract gets burned. So it gets it gets destroyed, right? And that probably right. also explains why so many of these ICOs, these uh, initial coin offerings, as they're called, are are Ethereum driven. Well, they're Ethereum they're Ethereum driven because of the e, something called the ERC twenty protocol, which makes it very easy for you to issue a coin under this protocol, and it makes the storage of the coin or the token uh, very simple. Um, uh, that's why the Ethereum network has so much value right now because it's very easy to launch a, a new token on that network. And of course, Ethereum was the first to create smart contracts, which have profound implications for the future of business. In terms of, uh, you know, just 
complete misunderstandings. And I'm going to go back to this again because, you know, this stuff is getting attacked left and right. And you are admirably defending the space from, you know, the likes of Jim Rickards. And, well, I think Doug Casey was even, you know, uh, he wasn't. Uh, oh, no, he, no, he's a bull. He's, he's a bull. He sees, this, yeah. he sees this more as a trading opportunity, I think, yeah. rather than systemic change right. in the way that, you know, business is done. Yeah. Whereas I, I view this as we are at the birth of a brand new uh, industrial revolution. Right. So, so along that lines, like what's the, what do you think the misunderstanding is uh, most frequently amongst people like Rickards and stuff that, that you would take this opportunity maybe just to clear up as people hear this argument over and over in podcasts like mine well, from I, I would say that it comes back down to the internet. In the early 90s, very smart people said the internet was dumb, was stupid. It was just, even back then, most of the internet postings were people talking about their cat and putting up pictures of their cat. And, um, and there was no scaling back then, right? The internet was incredibly slow. So folks would look at that and say, Rather than looking at where that technology curve was going, they were looking at where the technology was in that moment, which was essentially cat pictures, pornography, and really slow download times. And they couldn't see beyond that. And um, and they said, oh, you know, this is this is ludicrous. This will never scale. The technology doesn't exist for millions of people to be using this at the same time. Uh, uh, this is a complete waste of time. Uh, even Bill Gates you know, basically came out and said that the internet was dumb. Yeah. So um, there's just what happens is as you get older, um, you it's, you have this frame of reference that you work from and it works for you and uh, for, until it doesn't, right? Yeah. And so every, every 15 or 20 years or so, everything changes, right? The paradigm changes and your old frame of reference no longer has value. But we are so emotionally and mentally attached to the way that we view the world because it's worked for us. And especially if you're wealthy, it, it's, it's worked for you. The way that you view the world has worked for you. But there are times, Buck, when you have to be willing to sacrifice all you think you know in order to embrace a new idea so you don't get left behind. And that's the beauty of youth, right? Youth is not encumbered by this old frame of reference. It can see a different world. And that's why it's the young that paved the way forward uh, in technology. You know, it's it's interesting you say that because, um, so, you know, I'm, I am 44, so, I mean, I've seen some cycles. Most of the time, most of that life has been since spent in school broke for me, so I haven't had money. But but on the other hand, um, you know, I was, uh, I was in college right around the dot-com era. My wife was at Stanford when, you know, the whole thing went, you know, they were doing millionaire, 18 year old millionaire, you know, parties in San Francisco left and right. And when I look back on that, and I look at these things that, you know, I could have potentially been part of at the very early, um, in its infancy, I, I regret that, right? To me, I'm looking at this saying, you know what, this could take a crazy ride, and it probably will have huge ups and downs. But not having exposure to this, I think will be would 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 create some significant regret for me personally in the future do you do you do you hear that often <laughs> yeah i mean that's I, for the last 2 years i have been traveling around the world with a simple message own even if you think i'm crazy own a little bit of bitcoin because if i'm right 
you will experience regret like you can't imagine. <laughs> like Amazon trading at five bucks or something like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So what, what? I guess one last question for you, which is, okay, so you're very bullish. I'm bullish. Um, you know, uh, we just talked about $16,000 uh, Bitcoin as of today. Yeah. At what point does Tika Tuari say, I'm selling? <laughs> you know, I mean, what what has to happen? What, you know, obviously we were looking at this and you say this is going to go to, in my mind, it's going to 100, right? Yeah. But yeah. where do you look at it and say it's time to sell? What has to happen for you? I look at the adoption of, um, I look at, so I look at two things, right? I look at awareness of Bitcoin versus adoption of Bitcoin. And I talked about this briefly when I was in San Francisco. Right now, the awareness of Bitcoin is up quite dramatically, especially over the last two months. But if you actually ask people, hey, do you own Bitcoin? You know, 95 out of 100 are going to say no. So the adoption of Bitcoin is still very low, Buck. Mm -hmm. So what I'm looking for is for the adoption of Bitcoin to come up to the awareness of Bitcoin. And so when adoption of Bitcoin and awareness of Bitcoin reach, um, that's going to be when I'll think about taking some money off the table. Mm -hmm. Until then, I would have done all of my readers a disservice by selling too early. Sure. That makes sense. So Tika, tell us, uh, you know, I know you have um, lots of ways we can learn more about you and about What's going on? But tell tell us about some of the ways that uh, we can we can get information from you. Yeah, I um, I work for a company called uh, uh, Palm Beach Research Group. Their uh, URL is palmbeachgroup.com. And probably what I'm most famous for is writing a newsletter called Palm Beach Confidential, which is all about cryptocurrency. And it's it's the oldest newsletter in the space. It has the best track record in the space. Um, that's actually closed right now for new members. We've, we've had a huge influx of new members and we're focusing right now just on, on taking care of those members. We will reopen sometime, uh, next year. And if you're interested in finding out, um, about that, you can go to join big T, join big T, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, big T is a, just to, to digress. Big T is a nickname I used to have on wall street. I used to weigh well over 300 pounds. Wow. And but you're so, a big guy. Uh, what are you like? Six, three or so? Uh, I'm six, two, six, I'm two. six, two. So, so big T kind of stuck. And a lot of my friends still call me big T. Got it. So, uh, so that website, join big and you'll be able to just enter your email in there and join our wait list. And we'll let you know, um, uh, when the service opens up again. And I will certainly uh, make an announcement, send out an email uh, when I find out too. And I, I am actually a, a Palm Beach Confidential reader myself, and uh, I enjoy that very much. Tika, thank you so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today. Yeah, terrific. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three 
and a half years. These guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Now, what do you think? Is this is this cryptomania? Is this just a tulip mania like Jim Rickards thinks? Well, here's my take. Okay, there's obviously massive speculation going on in this space right now. And most coins uh, and ICOs, uh, will, will they're just not going to be around in the next five years. I mean, that is... Uh, I think that's pretty easy to guess. There's just too much, uh, too much stuff out there, too much hysteria for things that are not clearly of enterprise value. Uh, and there may even be a massive correction in the price of Bitcoin and some of the more uh, prominent coins. But make no mistake, okay, distributed ledger technology is here to stay. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's go back a little bit. Let's go back a couple of decades was there a dot-com bubble in the 90s? Of course there was. Did people lose a lot of money speculating? Of course they did. But was there real value in this whole internet thing? Yes, there was. And people who invested in some companies that went on to do some great things really came out making a killing, right? People who invested in Google, people who invested in Amazon early on made fortunes regardless of what happened in the dot-com bubble and what i'm here to tell you is that similarly distributed ledger technology okay blockchain all this it's real and it has real world value that will fundamentally change not only technology but also the way we do business and you know what you can't say that about tulips this is not a tulip mania. And certainly there may be a massive correction, like I said, but when the dust settles, mark my word, this revolution, this technological revolution, will probably result in the world's first trillionaire. And there's no question in my mind that tremendous amounts of wealth will be made by people who are not seeing this as a passing fad. Now, if you think I'm wrong, Tell me why, because I haven't figured out why. And you know, I'm not Mr. Speculation Guy. That's not what I am. I'm seeing a rising technology here that just like the internet, you know, sort of passed people by, passed investors by who look back and said, gosh, I wish I knew. I, I wish I noticed that when it was, was emerging. That's where we are with this stuff, ladies and gentlemen. And I strongly urge you to pay attention. So my call to action to you today is simple, okay? And it's not go invest in this stuff. But if you don't understand what I'm talking about or what Tika and I talked about with distributed ledger technology, blockchain, Bitcoin, all this stuff, just go to Google and start, you know, just plug in Bitcoin, blockchain, whatever, and watch a bunch of videos. Go to, Actually, that's even easier. Don't even read about it. Just watch a bunch of videos over and over again until you start to get it. And then maybe you choose not to get involved. That's up to you. But at least give yourself the chance not to kick yourself for not noticing the next world-changing technology as it unfolds before your own eyes. Anyway, that's it for me this week. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. 
Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com.